Hey campers, welcome back to part two of Colts. I'm Sarah. And I'm Allison. And we're two girls in a campfire. <laughs> Did I already say that? I'm going to say it again. <laughs> and one more time. We're two girls in a campfire. In case you didn't miss, you missed it. Are you at the campfire? Oh, I should have, except for the Wi-Fi doesn't work outside. Wi-Fi sucks. That would have been a good idea. We could record live. Maybe like fireside chats. We'll get you one of those Amish fireplaces that <laughs> don't have real fire. I don't know how those work. They're heaters. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they are. All right. So what are we doing? Colts. Well, I'm sorry that I missed last week, but it was pretty cool. Yeah. Loved hearing about it interesting I didn't know any of that well, most of it I knew they were in San Diego that's about it their website's still up have you looked at it it's crazy what no I didn't know that the website was still up and then you can email or yeah email them and they'll send you VHS copies of like him like shut up yes um you know telling his story or educating you or whatever did you send away for a VHS? No, I don't have a VCR. Who's got a VCR these days? I thought we could find, I could find one. I was going to say, I bet my dad probably has one. If anyone does. I bet there's still VCRs at the pawn shop. We could totally pick up a VCR. Yeah, we should. That'd be interesting. I've always wondered if like the Scientology stuff like is still on like cassette tapes. <laughs> I don't know how technology driven these cults are. Do they stay up to date? Uh, well, no. And if you look at their website, it's like all black with like neon colors. Like it looks like they made it in 94. Like a MySpace page. Yes. Hilarious. All right. What cults are you telling us about today? All righty. Okay. Uh, full disclosure. I am still dealing with a little bit of a cold. So I'm going to be, you're going to get deep voice deep voice Sarah my radio voice um I am going to be talking about well and and it, I'm pretty sure this has been classified as a cult it has been classified but I'm going to be talking about the uh religious leader Osho Rajneesh which um if you are a Netflix watcher you definitely may have stumbled across the documentary wild wild country which kind of talks about a period within this religious sect slash cults existence in the 80s. And I'm going to kind of touch on that, but there's so much more to this story. Um, I really kind of want to highlight like who this person was and like how he got all these people to follow him. Because I think that's where the real power lies. And that's always been my fascination with Charles Manson as well, is that this this charisma that these leaders tend to exude that just draws people towards them. Very interesting. We'll have a chat about that after we tell our stories. Starting off, we um, are talking about this leader has gone by a couple different names. So he's gone by the name Osho. He's gone by the name Bhagwan Shi Ranish, Osho Ranish. So this is all the same guy. I think for purposes of the story, I'm just going to refer to him as Osho. 
He was an Indian mystic. He was born in the 30s and he grew up in India. And in the 1960s, he he started um actually let, let me back up a little bit. So it was kind of in the 60s that he really started engaging in um, lecturing all throughout India, lecturing about free, you know, basically the free movement. He really believed in people being free and free love. And he was just, he was preaching this. And at the time it was really controversial because, you know, opposition of kind of what traditional Hindu values are kind of it's in direct opposition of what Gandhi had been teaching. And so in India at the time, people really didn't take him super seriously, but he talked a lot about meditation. He talked a lot about free love and he was very open to people expressing themselves sexually, which was really different at that time in India. And um, even to today, you know, traditional Indian principles don't really believe in you know, kind of this open sexuality piece. In the 1970s is when he kind of started gathering followers. Up until this point, he had been working for a university. As he became more well-known and kind of more controversial, the university pushed him out and he began supporting himself by just doing lectures and um, running these kind of meditation classes. And he, in the 70s is when he really started ordaining people his disciples. And he called these people Saras Sanyasins or Sanyasa. This is all kind of tied into the Hindu religion, which I'm not you know, super familiar about, but there's different levels called ashrams. And then as you're kind of disciples within each of these levels, any of our listeners, please feel free to comment and correct me. But just, you know, this is just a high level overview is that, you know, so basically he's he's dubbing these people his disciples is what it comes down to. By the late 70s, early 80s, he had probably, you know, a couple thousand people that were living in this um, ashram, which is kind of a, a, another word for meditation center or like a like a commune, right? They're all living together. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So like a commune type living and some people lived there full time. Some people would just kind of voyage there and, you know, do meditation or seek to learn about, you know, what they were teaching. The thing that I have always found really interesting about Osho and the fact that it has been labeled a cult is that the original principles that he started teaching were not he wasn't developing a new religion. He really took the core principles of other, you know, long, well-known religions based like Buddhism, um, just like these core principles about knowing yourself, being connected to nature, being connected to other people. And he kind of laid out these principles as they had already been written, not really trying to create anything of his own, but just encouraging people to kind of look into them for themselves and find themselves and find out which one worked for them. So I thought that that was always really interesting because when you think of a cult, you kind of think of somebody that is pushing their own agenda or their own ideas. At this point, he had kind of elevated himself 
So not only did he really believe in free love, he was also a, a huge capitalist. Like he totally believed in capitalism and he didn't believe that spirituality. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> I couldn't get everything unmuted. I was like, oh, I had that problem in Agamemnon too. I just have flashbacks of Mr. B screaming at me because I couldn't say some word exonerable or something like that. Uh, okay. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yay, drama kids. Um, so Osho did not believe that spirituality and materialism needed to be separated. He believed that you could know yourself and that you didn't necessarily have to live in poverty and suffer. He didn't really understand why those two things had to be mutually or, you know, why that the old teachers of the old religions really preached the poverty piece. He, he just didn't understand it. So not only was he trying to gather people to, you know, live a better, more mindful life, I think he really kind of was one of the first to see this as a business opportunity. Like the cult itself? Yeah, yeah, like gathering people and having people around him and, you know, being able to influence where people put their money. I think he really enjoyed that uh, idea of that power. At this point, he's, he, he has really kind of elevated himself as the spiritual leader. So along the way, he has gathered a small entourage of individuals. And at one point in the mid-70s, he meets um, this woman who is a very young woman. Her father brought her to meet him. She talks about this in the, uh, the documentary Wild Wild Country, where she was just sees him and she just felt immediately drawn to him that she knew that this was the person that she was supposed to um, be of service to. Uh, she starts hanging out with him and eventually becomes his personal secretary, which is basically his right-hand person. She helps him make decisions. She's his confidant. She's helping him, you know, kind of run the ashram, doing, you know, having people come in and out. And she's handling all the business aspect of things. So this is somebody that is very close to him and is in his business, you know, is just very part of the business or, you know, whatever is going on in the, in the eighties, because he is really controversial. And at this point, like people are starting to come to India just to see him. He's gaining some popularity. So he's still in India. He's still in India at this, at this time. time. Yeah. Okay. It's just, it's getting really controversial. Like India is not about it. There there's some political pressure. They're not really, you know, sure that they want him there. Uh, the Soviet Union at the time, like flat out banned the move, the movement, like this was called a movement at the time. At, at this point, it, the, like the kitchen's getting too hot. They got to get out of there kind of thing. So his personal secretary at the time, her name is Ma Anand Sheila. And so they just kind of called her Sheila. Uh, he sends her to the United States. And this is kind of where this documentary piece picks up is he sends her to the United States because he kind of wants to build an ashram in the United States, but he wants it even bigger. There's these visions of creating this entire city of these sannyasas and, you know, kind of this whole big movement. In the early 80s, Ma Anand Sheila uh, comes to the United States with um, some other of the disciples. They find property in Oregon. So they, they buy this huge acreage property um, in this little tiny part of Oregon, and it is in um, Antelope City. 
and they call this place the Rajneesh Puram. It's this huge commune and there are massive quantities of people. Um, they said that at its height, there were over 2,000 individuals that lived in this area, which for me just sounds like, like that's like a whole cities that don't, like, not, I guess not cities. There's like towns that don't have 2,000 people in them. And this ranch and this property that they built out in the middle of nowhere, Oregon, like there's just these 2,000 people. And like, I mean, they built everything. They had like a store and a restaurant and housing and a post office. So politically, they are pretty much a town, right? Onto themselves. Yeah. So, and there was a point where they did go and apply and like, you know, it is a township or, and then, you know, the actual, like the town of Antelope that they were kind of set up, you know, right outside of, there ended up being this huge political fight around it because they like bought the city of Antelope and like actually started calling it Rajneesh Puram and that, that part gets a little crazy. I'll talk about that in a little bit. So like the locals are pissed yeah. pretty much, right? Yeah. So Sheila comes, she finds this property, she ends up purchasing it. Right away, they start bringing people in. Even though like this is really kind of a free love kind of movement, and they're calling it a movement. All of the, all of the um, sannyasas are, or sannyasis are wearing the, you know, more traditional kind of dress. So like you know, they have saris and, you know, like traditional robes. And they, if you're moving into this little tiny hick town in the middle of Oregon and like basically like white people in overalls and they start seeing, you know, people that are different. It's just like, you know, and remember, this is like the very early 80s. So this is not something as culturally tolerant as it is today, if you even want to say that. But these people were not happy. So I'll just talk about a couple of the things that were going on at this ranch at the time, because it's pretty crazy. I said that, you know, the Bhagwan definitely believed in materialism and capitalism. And so at one point on this farm in Oregon, he had over 90 Rolls Royces vehicles, which like to me is just insane. Like, how are you going to get your 2000 people around? (laughs) They're not going to fit in the Rolls. You get a Rolls Royce. You get a Rolls Royce. Everybody gets a Rolls Royce. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that just a bit like when you think about that on a financial level, that's crazy, right? Just the level of money that they have. Like we have more money than we know what to do with. So we're just going to buy all this shit. Exactly. And that's, and that's the thing about a cult that is that for me, nobody like, is are just nobody thinking about where all this money is going? Because like, think about it. He's, not only running, they still have the ashram in India. So like that's still running and they're building basically their own entire city. Somebody's funding this. And then on top of that, you have 90 Rolls Royces. And see, that's the thing too, like doing all this cult research. I'm like, where the hell is this money coming from? Nobody's working. They're all sitting around in the commune. Like, how do you support that? Also, can we start one? Cause I don't want to go to work. Yeah. I mean, I'm not that charismatic. <laughs> People aren't going to give me all their money. Damn it. We'll, we'll find a leader. So yeah, so that's just like right, right off the bat, like that's a crazy thing. And he used to like get in the, his favorite Rolls Royce and just like drive around the commune, like the main property. Cause it was kind of like this big ranch in the mountains, but like, so, but he's just driving around like the part where the, everybody lives, like in his car, like waving at people. Oh, like a parade. 
Hello to my followers. <laughs> so yeah, so that was like a crazy thing. Because he was so open-minded about sexual human sexuality, you know, from the very beginning, even back in India before they came to the United States, he had been called like this, it had been called the sex cult. And they really talked about the fact that there was a lot of like open free love and that there were, you know, drugs involved, big drug-induced orgies that would happen. And see, I think that's a, a big part for me about the cults, like Manson too, like you have all this like free love and drugs. And is that why we think it's okay to join the cult? Cause we're like, yeah, everybody's doing it. Yeah. Or maybe they got, maybe more people need to have sex and do drugs. I don't know what this, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the takeaway is. Don't join a cult. Just do it yourself. Yeah. I don't know if you just do it anyways, or like, don't do it. It's hard to say. <laughs> so yeah. So and that kind of fed into to the to the city to the town of Antelope, the you know original residents that had lived there, and it, like I mean these are people that have lived there for generations. You know these are farm people. Their families have farmed the land, and then like you said, they're kind of isolated. They're up in these mountains, so they're like they have no idea what to do. Right, like they're conservative people, and then here come these sex hippies that are like. Meditate. And not only that, they're not American. Yeah. And some of them are, you know, some of them are, but, but, but a lot of them are not. Right. Exactly. And they kind of paraded in their face. Like you said, they have their traditional dress on. You can't miss them when they go into town. It's not like they were like hiding out in the commune. Right. Like they're coming into town, like in like droves of fucking people like buying out the market, you know, cause there's like a gazillion of them. And yeah. So it's just like very disruptive. I, I watched the whole documentary that this, it's a six part series on Netflix. And it was really interesting because, um, and I'll just give a high level overview in case somebody wants to go and actually watch the documentary. Spoiler alert. But they, <laughs> yeah. Spoiler alert. So they get settled in Oregon and they're getting pushed back from the town and people are really talking about like trying to get them out of there. Ma'anan Sheila has at this point, she's really kind of taken over basically making any of the day-to-day decisions. Osho had declared a vow of silence a couple years before. I'm not really sure if that meant that he didn't talk to anybody or maybe he just talked to her but he wasn't like talking and meeting with the people with like his followers. He wasn't really, he kind of was hiding out a little bit at this time. He like kept to himself. He didn't really like go and lead, you know, any of the meditations or any of the exercises that they were, you know, engaging in. So, which is interesting because, you know, you join this cult for this charismatic leader and he's like, oh, okay, well now that you're here, I'm just going to go back here and be by myself and spend my money on fucking Rolls Royces exactly which like crazy right so there was a part in in the documentary in the very beginning where there was this american couple that had flown to the ashram in india to meet him you know they had heard about you know this philosophy these teachings from like a friend and they kind of wanted to check it out themselves they had watched you know they had done like videotapes and cassettes and they had listened to this cassette and was like yeah we're gonna go and like we're gonna go to india and check this guy out well, they went and then like the next day is when he de- declared that vow of silence, but they stayed like they totally like stayed. And I remember watching it going, 
why the fuck wouldn't you just go home? <laughs> go the fuck home. Find somebody else to follow. Well, did you ever read the book Eat Pray or yeah, Eat Pray Love? Because she goes to India to go be with like this guru or whatever, like at an ashram. But then the guru's not there. So then she just like stays because it's still that person's place, even if they aren't there, which I find kind of weirdly culty too. Like, yeah, I mean, I get it. Maybe I'm just not that spiritual. I don't know. You're like the vapors of your energy aren't enough. Like if I pay for a concert ticket, I expect you to show up. (laughs) Yeah. You're not just playing a recording of your concert from five fucking years ago. (laughs) Yeah. Like I, if I pay to go see Elton John, I want to see Elton John. I don't want to see the weird hologrammed Elton John. Like Tupac. Which is probably the only way <laughs> I'll be able to afford to see Elton John. But I'm just saying, I want to see the real thing. I would totally go see hologram Tupac though, right? That would be awesome. I'm down. There's supposed to be good holograms. I don't know. <laughs> okay. The point is, if you decide to join a cult and the leader's not there, you should find a different cult to join. That's a lazy leader. So yeah, so Sheila, Ma'anan Sheila is is kind of running the show. And in my opinion, and I think it's fair to say probably in other people's opinion, her ego is getting a little big. So at this point, like they have attracted, you know, like television crews. They do end up buying the town of Antelope and like changing the name. This ignites a whole kind of like political controversy that goes crazy because now that they've been incorporated as a town, basically the Rajneeshas, the people that are here in the commune, they outnumber the people that originally lived in the town. And so, you know, they're basically making all these decisions and like changing names of street signs and doing all this shit because they have the votes. At one point, they even were like going into Portland and like filling up buses of homeless people, like telling the homeless people like, oh, well, we have this really beautiful commune in the mountains and we'll, you know, feed you and you can just come and work the land. And so like they're basically busing in homeless people to like up their numbers to vote. That's crazy. And this is the craziest shit, though, is that because they were like, oh, homeless people and like the stigma around what that means about who you are as a person. And like, although I'm sure that there were probably some less than savorable characters that they picked up, they were fucking drugging these people. Okay, wait. The people at the ashram. Yeah. Bring these homeless people there. And then they were like, just kidding. Here, have some drugs. Well, they were like, you can stay, but they wanted to keep them like from being violent or like anything. They were drugging them with Haldol. Oh, well, that's a good idea. Haldol. That'll knock your ass out. Yeah. You'll be a zombie. Okay, Yeah. You're the nurse. Tell us what (laughs) Haldol is. Like, right? Like it's a sedative. Yeah. So you give psych patients a lot when they get combative and or out of their mind. Yeah. So like they were part of the town, but they weren't really like, they didn't tell the homeless people, like they didn't tell them like you have to buy into our religion or anything, but they were like, yeah, you can live here. And like, I think some of them probably ended up, you know, kind of converting and, but some of them are just like, oh, I don't have to live on the street in Portland. Like there's a bed and food and sex and drugs drugs still like, (laughs) yeah. Oh, and you just want me to vote and you know, like, okay. So it was a very strange thing. And at this point, like the original townspeople of Antelope are like, what the fuck? So like not now only is it like crazy sex hippies. Now we have all these like homeless people that are just kind of overrunning the little main town anyways. So 
it, the whole thing was a mess. Ma and Sheila had like gone off her fucking rocker at this point and they started contaminating salad bars in the in the town of Antelope and the surrounding vicinities and in Dolls, which is kind of like the next biggest town. They would go to the Pizza Huts like back in the 80s, remember? And they had like the salad bars. All you can eat. Yes. Yeah. And they were poisoning the salad bars. They poisoned over 750 people. Like a whole fucking town of people got sick. Gross. Yeah. That's also why I don't go to buffets. <laughs> but it was because they were trying to keep people sick to stay home to not vote in the election. Yeah, like there was wiretapping involved. Like they even Ma and this is still the eighties. Yeah, this is still in the eighties. It's like eighty four. Ma Anand Sheila was even um can, charged with trying to kill like the senator, the state senator at the time, I believe Charles Tucker. Or sorry, U.S. Attorney for the District of Oregon because he was investigating them. So he had like kind of launched this investigation to like what was going on in this little like corner of Oregon that like people were upset about, but nobody was really doing anything about. So he starts investigating them and like, yeah, she had like this whole plot. Like she had people, you know, followers, these religious followers that are there and supposed to be believing in free love and self-exploration. Like she had them like practicing, you know, like on the gun range because they were going to shoot this U.S. attorney. That would have been very sly, right? Nobody would have suspected anything when you kill this U.S. attorney who's investigating you. Yeah. Red flags. Right. And like supposedly there were um, plans that they were going to bomb the county courthouse on the voting day. Like it got really crazy. And like and the documentary, like the series is worth a watch. Like I recommend you go and watch it because they talked to people that had been involved like from the beginning in the early 70s before any of the shit like hit the fan. And then like and then they still kind of follow the same belief system today. Even though Osho uh, died, he passed away in 1990, 1990, I believe. So like he's passed away, which was a whole thing in and of itself, because there was all kinds of conspiracies around how he died. It was all very like mysterious that he died suddenly. But wasn't he pretty old? So he was born in 31, 90. He would have been 60-ish. Yeah. He looked old, like he just looked old. Like, I don't know. You have to look old as fuck for a really long time if you want to be a guru, I guess. Nobody trusts young people. We don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> grow a beard. Maybe if I grow a beard, people will follow me. So yeah, so like so like his death was incredibly controversial as well because all these doctors were there, but like they had to call in the special guy to sign the death certificate. They thought he had been poisoned. His body was like cremated within an hour after he died with no explanation, like at the ashram in India. So, okay, so let me back up just for a second. So after the whole thing blows up in Oregon, they basically like kick everybody out of the country. Like they, they start charging people. Like the U.S. Marshal Service got involved. Like there were ammo gun stock that they found after they raided the ranch. Like it got crazy. And the easiest way to get rid of everybody is just deport them. And there'll be someone else's problem. Well, some of them were here totally illegally. So in order to boost those, the numbers of the town, not only had they been busting in these homeless people, they had also arranged for all of these like fake visa marriages. So they were sending the followers that were in Oregon in the United States that were American, they were sending them back to India to like fake marry 
you know, Indian followers to bring them back uh, to Oregon. Like, I mean, so there was all kinds of like fraudulent, like activity, identity fraud and all this kind of stuff involved. So yeah, so a lot of the people that were there at the time were there illegally. So they did start charging and deporting people. The Osho, the leader got out, you know, a couple of the other high ranking people of his entourage, you know, like left in the middle of the night on a plane and just, you know, kind of left all these people there, which is another thing that you see in cults, right? Like as soon as shit hits the fan, the leader's like not there to keep everybody calm, cool, and collected and be like, it's going to be okay. They're the first ones to dip out. Yeah. Yeah. In the middle of the night, there's like, peace out. Hope you make it. <laughs> or not. I don't care. Cause I'm safe. Free love. Don't forget to meditate. So yeah, so the whole thing in Oregon happens, he dips out, he ends up back in India, even though he had been super controversial, like because of the media attention that he's drum up, like the views have shifted in India a little bit. So they've gotten a little bit more progressive. So he's kind of welcomed back into India. And he continues to, you know, build this following on a, on a different level, because now he's not trying to like take over a town. But you know, people are still coming to the ashram. They're still following him. And then, you know, at the point of his death, he was, you know, a, a pretty big guru at this time. Like I said, there were, it was very hurried. He didn't have, like, they, his followers weren't really allowed to do, like, this mourning process that they had. They only had, like, 15 minutes. And then they cremated him within an hour of his death. Some of his closest family members weren't even told that he died until like days after they already cremated him yeah that's crazy not only did i get the call oh you know um he died also we already cremated him and buried the remains and we we already did everything you don't have to worry about it yeah don't worry about it it's all taken care of hope you didn't need any closure it was also apparently really uh mysterious because his caretaker and slash girlfriend this woman that had you know kind of been around for a while she had died just a little bit over a month before him, also very suspiciously. She was, you know, just in her 40s. She was in good physical health. Um, and she was also hurriedly cremated by the, the high entourage. Like, it wasn't even her family again. It was just all these people part of the movement. I'm sure there's some good conspiracy theories about that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and they talk about how, you know, these close, the closest confidants had said for years and years that there hadn't ever been a will. Well, suddenly he died in 1990. Suddenly in 2013, like this will shows up because like the people that were kind of running this, you know, because the organization continued on. Somebody just kind of, you know, they were like, oh yeah, we're in charge now. We take over. Well, you need somebody to go claim the 90 Rolls Royces. <laughs> right. So yeah. So it's just, you know, so there's been a lot of still just like legal kind of turmoil, even within the last decade around, you know, his legacy and what he's left. It's very, I thought that this was a really interesting one to talk about because he just, it is classified as a, a cult. He was, or was classified as a guru slash leader, but a lot of the like really crazy stuff that happened happened around that movement you know their movement didn't really have anything directly to do with him you know I wonder if he tried to claim that too like oh that was Sheila's idea she was the one that said we should poison the salad bars 
she was the one who was going to shoot the attorney investigator, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, he actually, he totally did. Because obviously, at some point, he had to start talking again. Kind of as shit was going sideways, he starts, you know, kind of giving these, he would come out in the evenings and sit in the, on the stage and all the followers would come around and, you know, listen to him just kind of talk and spew his nuggets of wisdom. But he did, he talked about how, you know, like Sheila was the one that was kind of screwing up and Sheila was the one that had done all these things and and yet he lets her control everything right like who's the patsy but it's hard to say because when you watch her on video and these they even had like I think I told you there was there was footage from film that they shot back in the 90s because they had created this media buzz right of all this whatever was happening out on the ranch and so you watch these videos and this is not a woman that seems like she's taking orders like she is ornery she is feisty she basically tells these reporters to go fuck themselves you don't you don't I didn't really get the impression that she was kind of the assistant yeah like that she was just like under some spell but it says to me though like I mean a lot of people really believe that Osho's philosophy was a is a good philosophy, that it's a good way to live your life, that the things that he had to say were beneficial and inspirational. It, it, but it's hard to say because then here's this leader, you know, it's very like kind of Joel Austin-y, right? Like I, that guy's a fucking cult leader. I don't care. Because what you're supposed to be teaching people, what do you teach? You teach the Bible, you teach them to be humble and live in poverty and you have the exact opposite. Yeah. Jet planes and literal fucking arenas that you wouldn't open up to house people and who was their one he was old and he died not too long well maybe it was probably a while ago the graham right billy graham yes in i think it's north carolina he has like a compound there's like a huge ass sign and i'm like now who's got a cold you even have your fucking hundreds of acres all fenced in like that's crazy yeah i know so it So it's really hard to say, like, you know, did she just go off the deep end on her own? Was he encouraging her? Because I feel like obviously the human ego can kind of run away with itself and you can get a big head. But, you know, how much all that power. Right. But like how much more empowered would you feel if you had this guru telling you that you were right or to continue to do these things or that you're doing a good job? It's just uh, it's interesting, the dynamics that are formed within these cults in these groups of people. Yeah, that's crazy. Is she still alive? I imagine. She is still alive. She's, um, I believe she's in her, she her late 70s at this point, early 80s. Um, and she... She retired with all that money? Well, she she went on trial and, you know, I believe that she even went to jail for a period of time for like assassination plots. And But she now lives, I believe it's in somewhere in Switzerland. So yeah. That's interesting. And she, um, it's very interesting because she is still really service oriented. She runs kind of like an old folks home and like helps these older people that don't really have anybody else. And so she just how dolls them all (laughs) and cashes their fucking pension checks. Right. Yeah. I mean, I saw that movie, so it's totally (laughs) possible. Many of people have done it. 
Yeah. I mean, I mean, who knows? Like the Netflix documentary team was there. I mean, if anybody was in the back being like, you know, waving around telling them, no, no, help me, help yeah. me. I don't think that was happening. But, um, you know, you never know. And, and I think that that was the part that got me thinking like, oh, well, that's a really interesting way to take this, that you're going to continue to be of service to people and still continue to teach, like basically just accept everybody and love everybody. But you were so willing to poison people and build up this, you know, mini arsenal and take on the US government, you know, how much of that was her? How much of that was him? You know, how much of that was the influence, the the group? Yeah, that whole mob mentality where the more people that are doing it, the safer you feel. So you have this whole group of people and you're like, we can do whatever we want. Who's going to stop us? Exactly. So that is a little bit about Osho, Rajneesh and his, his movement and his cult. That was very interesting. What have you got like you've got another one lined up right yeah i have another one all right let's hear it this one's i'm very excited about so james warren jones or jim jones as he's more commonly known he was born on may 13th 1931 Okay, so do you have to be a cult leader if you were born in 31? That was like a requirement, right? Your guy was too? Yeah, maybe that's it. We were born in the wrong year. Damn it. (laughs) So he is known as an American cult leader, political activist, preacher, faith healer. He led the People's Temple, and that was a new religious organization that he created that existed between 1955 and 1978. Also, that's what's really interesting to me, too. Like, how come we don't have, like, recent cults? Or do we just not call them that? Just Scientology? Well, right. Like, a lot of these happened in, like, the 60s and 70s. And like you said, free love and drugs. and Well, I, I think we can talk a little bit about why that is. Because I think that there aren't necessarily as many, like, formed cults. But you could really look at a lot of the kind of group activities that happen today that are pretty cultish right so right social media well social media but even like i mean diehard crossfit people <laughs> like vegans yeah I, and then th- not that there's anything wrong with these people's choices or what they choose to do but the mentality of the but the fanatic side of it right like because not everybody that does crossfit is a crossfit fanatic but when you get fanatical about things yeah like even like even yoga right like there are people that are super yoga fanatics they won't even talk to people that don't do yoga like that seems pretty fucking culty to me for sure so maybe it just looks different in today's landscape that's true So as a child, he was a voracious reader and he studied Joseph Stalin, Karl Marx, Gandhi, and Hitler. Oh yeah, all the good ones. And he developed a fanatical interest in religion. Um, somebody, a writer that did like an autobiography a on him, suggests that this was because he didn't really have any friends. So he went home and read. Because what else are you going to do? Childhood acquaintances, they called him that really weird kid. And he was obsessed with religion and death. His friends said that he used to have funerals for like small animals on his parents' property. Did he kill the small animals? 
Um, well, I think he might have stabbed a cat to death. Ah, but then he wrote for him, so you know that makes up for it, right? <laughs> and then one of his childhood acquaintances said that after the German prisoners of war were released, they brought them to Lynn, the city they lived in, and there was like you know like a parade of them coming out, and one of them patted Jones on the back of the head, and he responded by giving the Nazi salute and saying "Hail Hitler" to these prisoners of war that just least like what the fuck i hope that guy punched him in the face wow so definitely psychotic from a young age jones and a childhood friends of his both claimed that jones's dad was in the kkk jones would say how him and his dad would argue on issues of race and that he stopped speaking to his dad because he refused to allow one of his black friends into the house. Then his parents divorced and Jones relocated with his mom to Richmond, Indiana. So to support himself, he worked as an orderly at a hospital. Again, kind of like with Janine Jones, he's well regarded by the senior management. They're like, yay, he's such a great worker. But then the staff members that actually worked with him, they would talk about how he had like weird, disturbing behavior. He said that there was a time when Jones manhandled a patient that was in traction while he was dry shaving him. I'm like, what the fuck were you doing? Who dry shaves anybody? The, the patient actually got cut and it was with a straight razor. And then he like gave a threatening look to the coworker because he witnessed it. Can we just talk about how inefficient middle fucking management is? <laughs> <laughs> they never listen. Right? They never listen. They're like, oh, he's a great worker. He comes to work every day. Yeah, that's it. And so, of course, that's where you meet your spouse at work, right? So he meets nurse Marcine Baldwin, and he gets married to her in 1949. Kind of like you were saying, like, his beliefs were good. They, like, you know, love your neighbor and whatever. That's kind of how Jones was. And that's kind of how he started attracting followers. So him and his wife adopted several non-white children. He referred to their household as a rainbow family. Aww. And he told people that integration is a more personal thing with him since now he's, it's a question of his son's future you know what I mean so you start caring about what's going to happen because wait that's my kid that might be affected by it that sounds legit right like you're like oh what a nice guy right racism is terrible and he this is like when he starts the temple and he refers to that as like a rainbow family so he was ordained as a minister in 1957 by the independent assemblies of god uh jones would later claim to be the return of elijah the prophet so that was like my other one too. They said that they were um, the return of Jesus. That was their spirit in heaven. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. Right. And he's the voice of God. Why so not? you should listen to him. Also promoting the belief that the end of the world is eminent. So he's elected president of the Worldwide Pentecostal Convention Board in 1957. And so that kind of helped him get connections throughout the Pentecostal movement. And I don't know how any of this works, how he gets a ordained again by this time by the disciples of christ so the people's temple of the disciples of christ is commonly referred to as the people's temple they were originally founded in indiana he distinguished himself with his civil rights activism so like again he's out there he's spreading a message that combined elements of christianity with a little bit of communism and socialist ideology and he's out here emphasizing racial equality 
1965, he moves the temple to California. Because apparently if you have a cult, you should be on the West Coast. Uh, it's because they want to be in the sunshine all the time. Does Oregon get a lot of sunshine? Parts of it, parts of it does maybe. The temple starts making ties with a lot of left-wing political figures and at the time they're boasting that they have 20,000 members. In reality, it's probably somewhere in the three to 5,000 range, but you know, it's like six people. (laughs) (laughs) I just added a couple zeros. It's his family, me and my kids. I have a cult. There's eight of us here, right? (laughs) (laughs) You do have a cult. So some descriptions of this church or the temple, they emphasize that Jones had autocratic control over everything, but actually he had like this whole leadership structure, just like, like you said with Sheila. So he has different people who have unevenly dispersed decision-making powers in their members. He start, you know, without their knowledge, of course, he starts subjecting them to mind control and behavior modification which was stuff he learned from post-revolutionary China and North Korea. They had a tightly defined boundary that enemies or traitors to the temple should be crossed at their own peril. So if you try and leave or even disagree, you're going to put yourself at risk and the rest of the members are going to come after you. Ooh, that's very Scientology. Right? And while the secrecy and caution he demanded in recruiting um, led to, you know, less people joining because it was, you know, a little bit more secretive, it also helped him foster some hero worship of himself as the ultimate socialist. That's how he referred to himself. So in the 70s, they decide to establish a more formal hierarchy. So at the top, were the temple staff and that was a select group and they were mostly college educated white women they would undertake the temple's most you know sensitive missions they acclimated themselves to a kind of the end justifies the means philosophy and that's how the temple ran itself the earliest member was sandy bradshaw and she was a socialist from new york there was some other ones that made up that first that top hierarchy carolyn layton she had been a communist since she was 15 she had a baby with jones because again free love so everybody's sleeping with everybody sharon amos she worked for the social services department because you know he's out there adopting those babies and being an activist he has a personal secretary and then he also has a navy brat who came and joined it was tired of the navy so she turned to a pacifist wait like did she just like go AWOL or like she like yeah just took off yeah we're done cool um so that top group they were kind of considered like the elitists by the temple and they were like the secret police so if shit had to get done they were the ones that were gonna do it so within five years of moving to california they had like this huge growth and they um opened a bunch of branches so they were in like san fernando san francisco la and by the early 1970s jones starts shifting his focus to more of the really big cities across california so he moves the temple's headquarters to san francisco And so this is the 70s. So San Francisco is like a major center for, you know, radical protest movements and things like that. And Jones and the Temple soon become influential in city politics. And because of, you know, their power, they um, help George Moscone be elected as mayor in 1975. Coincidentally, he then appoints Jones as the chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission. 
he's out here being able to get, you know, contact with all these politicians at the local and national levels. Him and the mayor met privately with the vice presidential candidate, Walter Mondale, on his campaign plane days before the election in 76. And Mondale actually publicly praised the temple. What? Wait, just wait. First Lady Rosalind Carter also met with Jones on multiple occasions. She corresponded with him about Cuba and spoke with him at the grand opening of the San Francisco headquarters. <laughs> Fun facts. He received louder applause than she did. Oh, no. Right? Because he's charismatic. She's only the first lady. They loved the Carters, though. They were such nice presidential <laughs> people. So also while he's out here and, you know, he's political. So now he starts making alliances with journalists and um, some other people, the San Francisco Chronicle. But also with that move to San Francisco, they start getting some more media scrutiny so he had tried to like keep recruitment quiet but you moved to san francisco like you can't keep it quiet anymore a chronicle reporter marshall hilduff he wanted to do an investigative piece about the temple but his editors were like no we probably shouldn't do that jones is a really nice guy so he takes his story to new west magazine and just before they published it, the editor, Rosalie Wright, calls Jones and she reads him this article. And she explains that she's only doing so because of all the support letters they received on his behalf. The governor of California at the time, Jerry Brown, wrote to this newspaper or this magazine and was like, you, you what, why are you looking into him? He's such a good guy. Leave him alone. So while they're still on the phone and he's listening to these allegations that are in this article he writes a note to the temple members that are in the room with him and he says you leave tonight notify georgetown which is in guyana so after jones left for guyana he encouraged temple members to follow him there that is in south america the population down there in his compound grows to over 900 people by the end of 1978 those that moved there were promised a tropical paradise free from you know the wickedness of the outside world look at that magazine article they're just trying to be mean to us let's go so so the magazine still published the article. This chick just gave him the heads up. Yeah, like the day before. So literally. So that he would like, so that he could like get out of town or like not deal with the. The backlash. Yeah. Okay. Pretty much. All right. And like she said, she only did it because the governor, you know, said you were a great guy. So here's a little bit of warning for you. That See, this is like, this is how you know that religion was the first form of government. Exactly. Religion and government are exactly the same thing. Crazy. Right. Okay, go ahead. This is the summer of 1977. During Guyana. Yeah. So him and all those followers decide to literally in the middle of the night, like they all hop on a plane and they're out of there. They had this communal settlement already in there. And they called it the People's Temple Agricultural Project. But mostly everybody calls it Jonestown. Because this is, you know, his town. Like you said, you've got all these people. You have, you're bigger than some towns. Saraville. Dude, I want to live there. That sounds <laughs> kind of cool. The contents of his article was a bunch of allegations by people who had left the cult. Again, you put yourself at risk if you talk back to him, but they would tell about physical, emotional, sexual abuse. I guess he had this plan in place because he had started building several years before and he used it as a means to create both a socialist paradise and a sanctuary from the media scrutiny in San Francisco. 
So as soon as he kind of moved to San Francisco and was in, you know, the spotlight, he was like, mm, this probably isn't going to end well. We need, we need Jonestown. We need our own little place where we can go and be safe. Yeah. I like, you can't get hooked up and start meeting with the vice presidents and shit and like try to keep a low profile. Don't work that way. Right. He wanted to establish it as a model communist community and that the temple comprised the purest communists there are. And fun fact, Jones does not permit members to leave the settlement. So once you're there, you're there. It's like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Nobody ever goes in. Nobody ever comes out. You're a blueberry. You can't go home. He starts going about this and teaching his followers about this belief he has, what he calls translation. He's telling them that he and his followers will all die together, move to another planet, and then they'll just live blissfully. So again, just like Heaven's Gate, this UFO, that's how we're going to do it. If you want the good life, you've got to die and go to another planet because Earth sucks. It's like the communist mixed up his Marcus manifesto with Ron L. Hubbard's Dianetics. And they were like, they're like, oh, I guess part of communism is we'll just throw in some aliens too. Like, isn't that weird? Yeah. Go into religion too. And then you just throw in, you know, an alien. It's fine. Yeah. What a strange leap to make. So autumn of 1977, the defectors formed what they called concerned relatives group because most of them still had family members that were in Jonestown. Because like I said, he wouldn't let anybody leave. Timothy Stowen is one of those defectors and he goes to Washington, D.C. in January of 78 and he visits with State Department officials and members of Congress and he wrote a white paper, which I had no idea what the fuck this was. So a white paper is a report or guide that informs readers concisely about a complex issue and presents the issuing body philosophy on the matter. It's meant to help readers understand an issue, solve a problem, or make a decision. So he's detailing his grievances against Jones in the temple, and his efforts kind of aroused the curiosity of Congressman Leo Ryan. He actually writes a letter on Stowen's behalf to the prime minister of Guyana. So in November of 78, Congressman Ryan decides that he needs to lead a fact-finding mission to Jonestown. Like the only way you're going to find out what's going on is to go down there. He's going to investigate allegations of human rights abuses. He brings along relatives of temple members and NBC camera crew and reporters for various newspapers. They arrive in the capital, which is Georgetown, on November 5th. Two days later, Jones hosts a reception for the group at his central pavilion in Jonestown. And during this, Temple member Vernon Gosney passed a note that was meant for Ryan. He gives it to the NBC reporter, and he's pretty much saying, hey, me and this other Temple member we want to fucking leave, like get us on the plane with you. They decide to get the hell out of there and they leave the afternoon of November 18th because one of the temple members decides to attack the congressman with a knife. Oh. But they like blocked him and like took him down. So he was safe. They managed to take 15 temple members with them and Jones didn't, you know, try to stop them. He said, okay, bye. Well, as the members of Ryan's delegation board two planes at the airstrip. Jones's armed guard, called the Red Brigade, they arrived on a tractor and trailer and began shooting at them. And at the same time, one of the supposed defectors, Larry Layton, he actually wasn't trying to leave and he gets a gun out and starts shooting them from the inside, inside the plane. 
Wait, he wasn't really trying to leave? What was he doing? No, it was all, it was all part of the plot. What, did you, was there, are you going to talk about, like, is the government of Guyana involved at all? No, they're not in on it. No, they're just like, those fucking white people leave them alone. (laughs) Crazy white people. Yes. Again, and like they have like over 900 people there. Okay, that's, I, yeah, I'm just like, wow, you're just shooting people at the, at the airstrip, like yeah. Local airport, good lord, okay. Uh, but also, it's an airstrip. It's probably like a paved road in a grassy field, yeah. Yeah, I guess it's not like really an airport, right? So he's inside the plane, he starts shooting people. The NBC cameraman, Bob Brown, actually filmed, you know, 10, 15 seconds of it before he was killed by the gunman. Of the people there, five of them were killed. It was Senator Ryan, Harris Brown, the San Francisco examiner photographer, Greg Robinson, and Temple member Patricia Park. Surviving the attack were future Congresswoman Jackie Spear, a Ryan staff member, Richard Dyer, the deputy chief of mission from the U.S. Embassy in Georgetown, Bob Flick, an NBC producer, Steve Sung, an NBC sound engineer, and then a couple of reporters, and then the other few defecting temple members. Later that day, November 18, 1978, 909 inhabitants of Jonestown, 304 of them were children, died of apparent cyanide poisoning, mostly in and around the Central Pavilion. This resulted in the greatest single loss of American civilian life until September 11th. So the FBI... Wow. And what what year was this again? Remind me. uh, 1978. 1978. Wow. Okay. 2001. So this is the, the largest single loss of civilian life. Crazy. Okay. The FBI later received a 45-minute audio recording of the mass poisoning in progress. So on that... An audio record, like just people choking? Well, so on that tape, <laughs> Jones... I don't mean to be cavalier about that. Yeah, but seriously. Um, on that tape, Jones tells Temple members that the Soviet Union, with whom the Temple had been negotiating a potential exodus for months, So even though they're in Georgetown and they hadn't been there that long, they're like, well, shit, now we got to get out of here because the senator is coming. He tells them that they won't give them passage since they shot up the airstrip. Thank you, Soviet Union. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. Yeah. So the reason given by Jones to commit suicide was consistent with his previously stated conspiracy theories of intelligence organizations that are like allegedly conspiring against the temple that men would parachute in here on us and shoot some of our innocent babies and that they would torture our children they'll torture our people and his prior statements that hostile forces would convert captured children to fascism that is why a lot of the members who were really strongly into their leftist ideology to think that the suicide was valid that they were worried that they were going to come and that's the only way to do it so the audio recording is like his laugh speech to his people okay yeah so with that reasoning jones and several of the members argued that the group should commit what he calls revolutionary suicide by drinking cyanide laced grape flavored Flavor aid. It wasn't even Kool Aid. It's not Kool Aid. Everybody says you drink Kool Aid. It's not even Kool Aid. Well, I mean, you're in Guyana in the fucking 70s. So. <laughs> well, actually, so where that came from was they had some temple films that they got, you know, after the suicide. 
and some of and one of them showed him opening like a storage container that was full of Kool-Aid. Got it. Like a lot. Of- that's probably what they were like. They ran out of Kool-Aid and he was like, that's it. We got to get out of here. All we have is flavor aid left. Yeah, that's reason enough, right? On the site, they actually found all the empty packets of flavor aid so that that's what they mixed it with. So they mix a cyanide with a sedative. And apparently several years prior to this, he had taken large shipments of cyanide into Jonestown and he actually obtained a jeweler's license. That way it allowed him to purchase it in bulk to clean gold. So like he wasn't even like black marketing the shit. <laughs> like he went, okay, cool. Then I'll just- He's literally just stockpiling us. And he went through and was like, okay, well, I'm a, I'm a jeweler. I have a jeweler's license so I can get all of this. And they were like, okay, I guess so. I feel like, I feel like, yeah, like, where the hell do you get large shipments of cyanide nowadays? You can't just order that. Like, where are you going to get that? And that's crazy to think, like, back in the 70s, you could just be like, I'm a jeweler. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, you need the massive quantities of this seriously toxic poison because you're a jeweler. No problem. But it cleans gold so well. Apparently, members started crying because, hi, dude, most of them probably didn't want to actually do it. He counseled them. Stop these hysterics. This is not the way for people who are socialists or communists to die. No way for us to die. We must die with some dignity. So this is also on that cassette tape. That's good. Like that's like Japanese kamikaze, like, you know, don't disgrace your people. Exactly. He'd been brainwashing them for so long. You can also hear him say, Don't be afraid to die. Death is just the stepping, you know, into another plane, and death is a friend. His wife actually was like, Hey, we shouldn't kill these kids. They forcibly restrained her and then joined the other adults. She poisoned herself. So at the end of the tape, Jones concludes. We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide, protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. I mean, you're the only one killing people, buddy. Like the senator just wanted to check out your compound. Because you wouldn't let people leave. If you had just let the ones who wanted to leave leave, you could have done whatever you wanted. So according to Temple members Odell Rhodes and Stanley Clayton, they uh, escaped the mass poisoning. Children were given the flavor aid first by their own parents. Families were told to lie down together. Mass suicide had been previously discussed in simulated events called white nights on a regular basis. Oh my God, how terrifying. And during at least one of those prior white nights, he actually told them he gave them poison and they drank it. And then he was like, just kidding. That was just practice. How many people do you think were like, yeah, fuck it, Annie, just drink the goddamn Kool-Aid and then we can get on with our day. Like how many people were just like, this isn't real. Or assumed it wasn't real again, right? Yeah. Yeah. So following the mass murder-suicide, Jones was found dead at the stage of the Central Pavilion. He is resting on a pillow near his deck chair and piece of fucking shit didn't poison himself. He had a gunshot wound to his head. Which seems, why? The cyanide and the, you just go to sleep, right? And with the sedative? I don't know, because, I mean, I would assume so, but like cyanide's like corrosive. Oh, and how long did it take the sedative to kick in? So if you're already like painfully dying before you get knocked out, like that's horrible. And probably he watched it and was like. You think that's why he shot himself? He watched like. 800 and something people died was like "Mm, what an awful person 
Um, the coroner did say it was suicide. So he did kill himself. It wasn't like somebody murdered him in some, you know, attempt to escape. It would have been worse if he was just like sitting there when the authorities showed up, though. They later moved his body outside the pavilion for examination and embalming. The official autopsy confirmed that his death was a suicide. His son, Stephen, though, believes his father may have directed someone else to shoot him. But that's just, you know, his son speculating. He's like, yeah, he's a piece of shit. I don't think he would actually kill himself. But hey, hey, Phil, Phil, did that cyanide kick in yet? Are you convulsing too bad? Can you shoot me? (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. But also the autopsy showed that he had super high levels of the barbiturate phenobarbital and... That may have been lethal, too, if he didn't have, like, a physiological tolerance built up. So explain what that is. What is that? I don't remember. But, like, okay. <laughs> it's a drug, yeah. Oh, okay. Like I said, free love and drugs, right? Yeah. So Woo. they were saying maybe he thought he took a big enough dose to OD, but then decided, you know, I'm going to shoot myself. This is taking too long. Maybe. <laughs> Three of his sons. Stephen, Jim Jr., and Tim Jones survived the events because, okay, this is fucking nuts. So they were members of the Temple's basketball team, and they had an away game in Georgetown. Shut the front door. You <laughs> stage a, a mass suicide when you got people out on an away game? <laughs> Check the calendar. Right? Like, yeah, I was like, that's like, did they show back up at the temple and be like, what the fuck? That would be terrible. That would be horrifying. Right? They had to, though, because who's the one that calls, you know, like alerts the authorities? Also, who else survived? Because who has a three man basketball team? Right. There was other people on there. Crazy. At the end of 1978, the temple declared bankruptcy. All of its assets went into receivership. And in light of a shit ton of lawsuits, Charles Gary, that was the corporation, the temple was a, like I said, he did everything legit. It was a corporation. He petitioned to dissolve the temple. It was granted in the San Francisco Superior Court in January of 79. Few of the temple members remained in Guyana through the middle of 79 in order to wrap up their affairs and then they came back to the United States so the temple buildings in LA Indianapolis and Redwood Valley are all intact and as is their former Georgetown headquarters some of the former temple buildings such as the LA facility they're actually presently being used by church congregations which I'm like what the fuck church was like oh yeah they all killed themselves here we'll take their building I bet they got it real cheap Oh, but let me tell you, though, that that ranch that the Ranishas had, it is now run as a Christian per- church camp. What? Yeah. That's, oh, I can't. The temple's former San Francisco headquarters, it actually was destroyed in the 1989 earthquake. Now they built a post office there. Yeah. All right. So that is Jim Jones and the insane Jonestown massacre. That's crazy. I mean, I feel like I've grown up kind of hearing about that, but I didn't know a lot about it. And I definitely didn't think that that happened in the 70s. I, I For whatever reason, I thought that was happened in the 90s. I don't know why I had that weird correlation. Yeah. I also don't think I realized it happened out of the U.S. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess I didn't realize that either. So 
But yeah, I think so. All of these cults, I think the scariest part, I guess, is how connected they are politically. Like all of them, they're not just some little backwoods, you know, preacher that gets a bunch of people together. Like they have higher ups connected to them and supporting them. And I guess, again, they're charismatic. So everybody, even politicians, believe them. Well, there's also, I think, this element of there's definitely some sociopathic, uh, uh, you know, attributes here. Like you have to be a sociopath to be able to literally profess love and care for a large group of individuals, but then still maintain that you are going to do whatever it takes to get ahead. You know what I mean? Like, it's all very complicated because these people, you know, it's like Jim Jones telling these people like, I'm going to make you these perfect little communists and I'm going to do all these things for you. And then, yeah, just turning around and being okay with killing them. I mean, that's crazy. Like that's literally insane sociopathic behavior. But also I think you have to be it because who, well, I mean, I don't know, maybe you don't really have to be a sociopath, but who thinks that they could just be a leader and be like, yeah, I'm the voice of God. Come follow me. Why wouldn't you want to follow me? Yeah. Well, there's two schools of thought. There's either one. If you really think that you're the reincarnation of Jesus Christ, you're probably off your rocker a bit, right? For sure. Or two, you really don't believe it, but you're going to say it because you want other people to believe it. And that's where you are a sociopath. So either way, you're insane. Yeah. Well, and also, so like on yours, you know, they got out in the middle of the night and they took off when shit hit the fan. I was surprised because like I said, I like vaguely knew both of my stories, not a whole lot, that the leaders in both of them went ahead with the suicides and killed themselves as well. Yeah, I because I, you know, before going into those stories, I would have assumed that they jumped a jet and were like, oh, what? I I didn't know they were going to do that. Well, and that's where I wonder if there is like, you know, you know what the correlation is of these leaders that kind of are all about the self-preservation and willing to kind of do whatever to keep themselves alive. And then, you know, people like Jim Jones that I mean, I think that guy really definitely truly believed a lot of the crazy shit that was coming out of his mouth. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, when it came down to some of the religious and like the, like, you know, social socialist constructs. Well, and his obsession with death since he was little. And then that kind of combined, like you said, with that religious that, yeah, he believed that everything he said, like, and just like was Heaven's Gate, like, I think he seriously believed that they were going to end up on that spaceship. Yeah. Well, and that, you know, and then that kind of leads us into like educated middle class people. These are, these are the majority people that get sucked into these things, even with Osho, like even with that, that cult, that sex cult that just like the leader just got, um, charged the NVIM or whatever. I was like all the letters. Yes. Like (laughs) I looked into that too, but yeah, like you said, it's all these, we're fairly well off, we're educated And yet we fall for this shit. But these are, and so if you think about like, so thinking about the time in the 60s through the 70s, there was so much global turmoil, right? The Vietnam War was going on. There was a lot of, you know, the Cold War was about to erupt, you know, that all like came to the head in the 80s, right? Like 
there was so much disruption going on and there was, you know, a lot of, even we talk about a lot of like the murders and stuff that happened here, you know, in the United States with like the serial killers that were very prevalent in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And it's, I really think that it's so, it was so easy for people to kind of attract these cults and build these followings because people just, they wanted to believe in something good. When the world gets really dark and scary and shitty, like people want to believe that there is something good and they want to make that connection. And these really charismatic, maybe possibly sociopathic people prey on that. Well, and I was watching, um, I don't remember some show, but they were talking about like a smaller, lesser known cult. And I thought it was interesting because they did a lot of their recruiting so they had like the group that originally joined well then they all started having kids so then they would get these teenagers to like go to parks and be out you know just having fun and meeting people and they're like hey yeah the war is a terrible idea we're definitely against that oh hey do you want to come back home with us to our commune And so they managed to just, you know, like-minded people that they would get. And they were like, okay, yeah, everything does suck. You're right. Let's go. Well, yeah, I've been in that place before where you're just like, you're just craving connection. You're craving experience. You're craving like something bigger than yourself. I mean, that's really how religion, I mean, that's what religion's based on anyways, right? Like connecting with something larger than yourself. Oh, I was going to say, well, you had talked before, like when we talked about doing this episode about how a lot of them refer to them as family. And I think that is it too, is that you just have those young kids or people who are like out there and they feel like they're all by themselves and they're like, oh, look, there's a group and they're like me and we can be a family. Yeah. So if you start digging into, you know, cults and the, the psychology of cult behavior, you will find that there is a lot of language that is the same that they're used across cults, across religions. We're a family. You're the children. I'm brother so-and-so. We're sister so-and-so. Like it's all, it all is really designed to create that sense of belonging. It's just unfortunate though, that it seems that the people that maybe initiate these things either already have an agenda that they're pressing Right? They already have an end game that they're looking for, or they really, maybe they really do start this believing in the free love and all these principles. But what's that saying? Ultimate, you know, ultimate power ultimately corrupts. Do you get caught up in your own shit? Yeah. Like, how could you not? Like, and the hero were all these people and they adore you and they're listening to you. And you're like, yeah, see, I am this leader. Everybody, you know. It reinforces your belief. Well, and especially coming from America, like if you're an American, like what, like what is pushed more than anything, right? Like the ultimate success, quote unquote success is to be rich and famous and have people worship you. And if you are kind of just a regular average, whatever, or you have been working to become this bigger than life person, like when you have a hundred or 200 or a thousand people literally hanging on to every word you say and willing to do anything you tell them to do. I imagine that goes to your head pretty quickly. And like, yeah. And you just get caught up and then I feel like it snowballs. I'd be aware. I would, I would be such a, an asshole. <laughs> I would be a bad leader. You'd be like, what? You're listening to what I have to say. Why would you do that? 
They're like, don't listen to me. Why? I, I'm pulling this shit out of my ass. Come on. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. I just, I just needed a Rolls Royce. $4.90. I just needed some new cars. I didn't know you were all going to actually believe me. Yeah, I would feel bad after like six or seven people. I'd be like, we got to, this is getting too big. (laughs) (laughs) Wrap it up. If all of you don't fit into a minivan, that's too many followers. All right. Well, this was super fun and interesting. I love Colts. It was funny because I was always, I didn't understand. Like I said, like before, I just don't understand how, you would get caught up in this. And I mean, intellectually I do. I just don't as a person, but after doing all this research, it is very interesting. Yeah. I feel like I wouldn't be somebody that gets caught up in the bullshit, but who knows? I mean, maybe the right, we haven't met the right person, right? Yeah, maybe. I mean, cause all of it's recycled bullshit, right? Everybody says the same thing. Well, and that's what was so weird too. Like you would, if you're going to have this following, like you're saying something new or you're creating but you're not you're just taking a little bit of christianity and a little bit of this and throwing some fucking aliens and ta-da it's a religion (laughs) yeah and i guess that's it too because neither of us are religious like we didn't grow up going to church and no that 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 sense of not being complete without that element of faith has never been an issue for me like no we're also like the opposite too we're like no, I don't want to be a part of your fucking group. Get out of here. Yeah. I don't doing it. We don't want to. What? There's going to be 50 people there? No, thank you. <laughs> Again, if there's more than people in a minivan, we don't want to be there. Yeah, exactly. See, we're just, we're, we're, we could be a micro cult, right? Everything's micro these days. So we'll just be a micro cult. There you go. We'll have to decide on our philosophy. Me, you, your husband my wife, your kids, like, that's good. Right. Like, that's good. That's enough people. It's already nine people. (laughs) I loved this. I think we should do some more, like, I don't know, not cults again, but maybe some more kind of more in-depth couple episodes. Yeah. Okay. I always tell me how crazy this is. I've always wanted to go to a Scientology center. They have one in, in El Cajon. I know. I've always like, <laughs> even when I was younger, before I realized how bad shit they were, I was always like, well, I just want to go and check it out and see what they say. Okay. So even younger, like they have a mural of a fucking spaceship and like aliens on the building. Yeah. They were always bad shit crazy. Even when we were little. No, I know. I know. That's what I'm saying. Even when I was young, I knew they were crazy, but I was like, let's check them out. I just didn't know how crazy I'm like weirdly surprised that my dad didn't end up in there because he, he like loves aliens, right? Like I don't, I don't know how he didn't go in there and be like, "What is this?" Yes, I want to be in an alien cult. Yeah, how did you not? How, yeah, I definitely. Even if your dad wasn't a Scientologist, I'm really surprised that he never had like the Dianetics book, right? That's what it's called, right? Dianetics. Yeah, like I'm surprised that he just didn't have that book because <laughs> he's a reader, so right but yeah I mean like especially because it was like right there where we lived like we drove by it all the time I'm just surprised he was never in there like or or even better he'd be in there be like what that's fucking stupid that's not gonna be how it's gonna be yeah I give him shit about it except I really do feel like we can't really do an episode on Scientology because one like Leah Ramini already did everything and two like 
of our 12 listeners, one of them is probably a Scientologist and they will turn us the fuck in. I'm not, I'm not messing with that. One of our 12 listeners. Yeah. (laughs) They're everywhere. Scientologists are everywhere. Just so you know. They're listening through your phone. It's too late. Probably. (laughs) All right. What are we talking about next week? Oh, I think next week we are doing kidnappings. Is that what we're doing? We are. Yes. I'm so excited. I found a crazy story, but also it has like a financial tie-in again. Ah! (laughs) We are so going to be Jimmy Hoffa if we keep talking about the financial industry. Maybe that should be our deep dive in a couple episodes is like all the weird crimes connected to some kind of bank. Oh yeah. (laughs) All right. We're going to, I mean, the hole is endless, right? It's like Alice's rabbit hole. We could be there forever. There's a million things we could talk about. So, all right. Well, I'm excited for kidnappings and this was excellent. And we'll see you next week. We'll see, see you around, around the campfire. campfire. Spiritual out. Spiritual out. Oh my gosh. Spiritual out. Help me. I can't say the word spirituality. Smurfs. Jesus.